this is Haley Nauman, and you're listening to the Maybe Baby Podcast. Atlantic City. I'm here in Brooklyn and I am sedentary as ever, but I'm really happy you're here. I'm happy to be back. Happy to introduce you to my guest today, Jessica Defino, a beauty critic. I actually first met Jessica, well, I don't know Jessica personally, but I first came across her uh, when she left a really compelling comment on a prompt I did on Instagram for an old newsletter. I asked for examples of progress, technology, or advancements that had actually been bad for society or been some kind of burden on humanity. And her example was Botox. Her quote was, it superficially eases age anxiety for user, but compounds the issue for the collective, which I thought was a very satisfying and brief and evocative sentence. I had written under it when I included in my essay that it could be a whole nother essay. So I guess I kind of followed through on that this week, but I actually... I talked to Jessica first because after I included her quote in my newsletter, we emailed a little bit and I realized that she was a beauty critic with tons of bylines and essays on this topic from different angles. And I asked if she wanted to come on my podcast and talk about all of it. So we talked. That's the conversation you're about to hear in two seconds. And then I wrote a little bit of an essay afterward. If you are into the topic I wrote about on Sunday, which is a little bit more of like my personal experience with beauty, then... I'm glad you're here because this conversation is, I'd say like a little more expansive. We cover more ground. So let's just get right into it. Um, The beginning of my conversation with Jessica was a little bit hard to hear. So I just kind of cut it out. So there's no hellos. We're just going to dive. We're going to dive straight into the void as we should. Okay, here's Jessica. Um, So that's how we got in touch. And that's why I'm having you on today to talk about this. So maybe you could start by just talking about like your journey in the beauty industry or as a writer talking about this stuff. And maybe you can weave in like your personal evolution as well. Sure. Um, So I started working in the beauty industry, I think like a little late in life for the average beauty editor. Like it wasn't until I was 27 or 28 um, which I think did have a big impact on how I viewed the industry because I wasn't sort of indoctrinated in it from a very young age. Um, I actually started out in the celebrity editorial space, hmm. like my last job before deciding to to like fully dive into the beauty industry was I was a ghostwriter for the Kardashian Jenner apps. So I was like fake oh my God, internet I have Chloe. So many questions. <laughs> <laughs> it was a wild time. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. Yeah, it was a very weird job and a great job. Like, I loved it. It was a really fun exercise as a writer to just, like, have to immerse yourself in the mind of a Kardashian and then create content. (laughs) So you would write... So did you have to talk to them? Or were you just sort of guessing? No, it was was very um, Devil Wears Prada, where we would be at the office and we would create like this content for like a month. And then maybe like once a month, we would meet up with the sisters and kind of go through ideas with them and get quotes and kind of turn it into this like fully fleshed out piece of content that they would then like approve before it went live. So it was very collaborative, but, you know, pretty separate from them in the day to day. I see. So you would like present them with content and they would approve or Okay. Yeah. That's so, that is, I've, I, I know a ghostwriter too who's writing like a celebrity memoir. I've always wondered what that's like. She says it's much easier than writing in her own voice. It <laughs> is. is it oddly is. Yeah. Because there's, I mean, my first instinct was to say there's not that much pressure because it's not like any blowback really comes back on you in a public way. But then at the same time, it's super high pressure because you're putting words in the mouth of essentially like the most famous women in the world. So it's a super high stress environment, which actually was like one of the contributing factors to me having like a personal skin disaster. Um, So I'd always kind of had problematic skin acne, I was on Accutane, I was on antibiotics, I was on every like ointment or pill, birth control that a dermatologist could give you. Um, And then during that job, I developed something called dermatitis, which is just kind of like this catch-all phrase for irritation. And the the main treatment for it is steroids. So I was on topical steroids for two years. 
My dermatologist didn't tell me that was uh, two years too long. Like standard protocol is two weeks. <gasps> wow. And yeah. Does topical mean like a cream? Yeah, it just means you're like putting okay. the steroids on your face. Okay. And so when you're on topical steroids for that long, it basically, it can cause something called skin atrophy, where your skin just like kind of stops functioning. Like you wear your barrier away completely. Oh. It has no defenses. It's not able to, you know, do the things that you're skin normally does every day and it got to the point where you become like steroid resistant you go through steroid withdrawal because you know it's a drug like any other and there's no um there's nowhere to go from steroids like there's not something better that your doctor could give you yeah kind of the only thing you can do is just stop using everything so I I mean I had always been so invested in products and prescriptions and I trusted these things to solve my problems. Right. Although in hindsight, like they never did. I always needed to go on more and more and more. Right. So I don't know why I blindly trusted. But I got to this point where it was like, okay, I can't use products. There's no prescription that can help me. What am I gonna do? So I started researching just like what what does skin do? <laughs> like why was this so bad for my face and what should it be doing on its own and how do I support it in doing those things without putting something on my face so it became a lot more like lifestyle based like foods and exercise and stress management but then also there was this huge part of especially being in the celebrity space for so long and I think just in being a human in general you base your self-worth sort of on your appearance and how you present yourself to the outside world mm -hmm. and I just didn't have that anymore like my face was literally peeling off in chunks I couldn't wear makeup I remember going to work one day and like some guy in the elevator was like oh uh, are you are you contagious can I be around you like it was very um like emotionally debilitating because I didn't have this you know facade I had created for myself and then I realized, shit, okay, if I'm not, like, beautiful, if I don't feel like I look like myself, like, I guess I have nothing. I haven't put the effort into building up those inner defenses. So I think from the start, my journey with the beauty industry was very much like, yes, we have to fix some of these outside issues that cause us these, this, like, psychological harm, but we also have to address it as sort of the psychological harm of beauty culture itself, because products can't fix that. Right, right. Yeah. So how did, so did you kind of came to that conclusion before you started working in the beauty industry? Uh -huh. So is that kind of your goal going in was to talk about the sort of internal relationship we have with our appearance? Yeah. Yeah, I would say my goal going in was to really, one, deconstruct all of these ideas we have about how products help our skin and what our skin actually does. Because if you go through, I mean, even dermatology, but especially like editorial beauty, there is not a foundational understanding in the beauty industry of how the skin is meant to work and why it does the things it does. What we're doing really is symptom management. Here's how to erase what your skin is doing, but not how to address why it's doing what it's doing. So I really wanted to address that. And then, yeah, I wanted to, I feel like once you address that and you understand, you sort of develop this deeper emotional connection with your skin where it does alleviate some of that pressure that you put on yourself to look perfect because you understand like why your body is doing what it's doing and you want to help it and support it rather than like obliterate all signs of life. Right, right. So how do you differentiate between what you're saying, which is like learning about your skin and the sort of skincare craze, which has has felt like educational about skin in some ways. I'm using quotes where it's a lot of like, you know, people who are obsessed with skincare, they probably do know a lot about skin, but you're, you're coming at it from a different angle, right? It's a little bit yeah. more embracing of the sort of natural effects versus like using products to uh -huh. enhance the process, et cetera. Right. So the way that I think about it is that there is a lot of science in the beauty industry the science of products, the science of ingredients, the science of how all of these things work. Um, but it's science that's divorced from the source. So like the science of it doesn't matter if that science is not compatible with the science of your body, of the thing that you're putting the skincare on. And like sometimes I kind of compare it to the oil industry. Like there's a ton of science for how to uh, frack in the best possible way and get the most oil out of it and get the most bang for your buck and get the best results that you want. 
But that science doesn't change the science that says fracking is not good for the environment. Right. You know? Yes, that's a, that's, that's a really good comparison. So talk to me about when you started writing about Botox and plastic surgery. Was that something you got into later as you were talking more about beauty and our relationship with it? Or was that sort of always part of your beauty writing? No, that definitely came later. Um, I think talking about Botox and the way it affects beauty standards actually kind of came through the path of writing about sustainability in the beauty industry. Mm. Like in the skincare community specifically, there's all this infighting about what's more sustainable, like natural ingredients versus synthetic or glass bottles, which have like a high carbon footprint to recycle or plastic bottles, which like can't be recycled as much, but have a lower carbon footprint to make. And I was trying to like parse how I felt about that and what was actually sustainable. And then I started thinking of like, if we just could address beauty standards at the source, like materials wouldn't really matter because we wouldn't be buying 80 bottles of glass or plastic to put on our shelves to manipulate our faces because we would, you know, have detached from that need to like consume our way into happiness and feeling pretty. Yes. And so the more I started researching like the origins of beauty standards and the effects of beauty standards, like on our physical bodies and on our emotional selves, the more I was just like this interests me way more than writing about like jojoba oil versus a retinol like there's so much like deep juicy material there but then the flip side is that it also gets um very emotional and like very controversial and people get really upset about it but to me that was like a sign that we probably should be talking about this because we're so worked up about it yeah um, so one one of the first articles that I wrote in that sort of sector was exploring the trend of referring to Botox and injectables and fillers as an act of self-care. Because about two years ago, that was something that was, you know, there are all of these articles being written about, like, this is an act of empowerment. It's your choice to do what you want with your face. And this is self-care if it makes you feel better. And that just felt like very icky to me. Yeah. And I was like, why does this make me feel weird? I must investigate it. <laughs> yeah. So what was that first piece? What'd you say? Um, it was for fashionista.com and it was called, like, people are referring to Botox as self-care. How ethical is that classification? And I interviewed a lot of cosmetic injectors, a lot of dermatologists, and then just like a lot of regular people who got Botox regularly, got fillers regularly, or had done that before and had stopped for one reason or another. And the thing that really struck me about that piece was I had interviewed this one woman who was telling me about her injection appointment. And, you know, when you get injectables at first, it doesn't like look amazing. Like your face is red. You might be bleeding. You're kind of wonky. Your, your facial features are all over the place. And she was telling me that she looked in the mirror, like her rearview mirror in her car after her appointment and her face looked, you know, fucked up as it does after an appointment. And she was like, I already felt so much better. Wow. And I was like, that's such a disconnect from reality. And that is what I want to explore. Like, why does it make us feel better to do these things if the visual pairing of it is not, like, congruent with what we are trying to get out of it, you know? Like, just the effort of doing it makes us feel better. And that in itself shows that it's not a physical thing. It's a deeply psychological thing. Right. Yeah. I think like even if people don't use the specific language of self-care for fillers and Botox and plastic surgery for that matter, I think there's a lot of talk of like how it increases your confidence. And Uh I think that's, that's, it's, it's, it's sort of the same thing, right? Um, Yeah. And I think I see this language being used that's like really starting to normalize surgery and fillers to a a new place and it's reminding Mm -hmm. me a little bit of like or it's making me imagine a future where it's just as commonplace as makeup and um which sort of emphasizes the fact that these things kind of exist on a spectrum right like these are different versions of just manipulating our appearance and some are accepted and some are taboo Mm -hmm. the ones that are taboo are becoming less taboo and so um I'm curious, like, how you feel about that spectrum and, like, where you fall in terms of 
um, obviously feeling like m most of this, this whole industry really, right, is like capitalizing on an insecurity. That, yes. Or, or a need to be loved through, through like a lens that's maybe harmful to all of us or like, mm -hmm. it's basically based on a lie, which is that you'll like get more love if yeah. you are more beautiful, which mm -hmm. actually maybe I'll say, sorry, my thoughts are like really all over the place, but um, not a complete lie. Like I do think that it's, it's dishonest also to say that there is, that like your appearance has no bearing on how you're treated in society. Of course that's not true. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, just maybe you can just pop in because I could just go on forever. There's so much, um, there's so many good nuggets in what you just said that I'm going to just like hit through Sorry, quickly. yeah, you should no, just go through whatever is calling No, you. you brought up so many good points. So the confidence thing, I think that is kind of where this all starts. Like people say, this makes me feel more confident, so it's good. Um, and I... Like, this is kind of a weird comparison to make because I do not mean to, like, conflate beauty products with drugs. But, like, for instance, if you do cocaine, you feel great. That doesn't mean it's, like, a healthy, good choice for you or an act of self-care. You have to examine the underlying, like, whole of, like, why you don't feel great in the first place, why you're not confident in that area in the first place, and why you think that doing whatever thing will make you feel that way. And I think in beauty, the thing to remember is that like beauty products or beauty procedures can only make you feel confident if beauty culture stole that confidence from you first. And that is the basis of all beauty marketing is even if it comes off on the surface as like empowering thing, beauty culture steals this innate sense of worth and confidence that we have um, when we're born, when we're children. Um, through a very slow and constant drip of manipulative marketing through the media, through, you know, the beauty industry specifically, just through like laws, through the government. There are all of these concrete ways in the real world that your adherence to beauty standards do actually affect how you get treated, which is the other thing that I, I wanted to to circle back with what you said is what makes it so complicated complicated is that there are real world rewards and consequences for adhering to beauty standards and that really can't be ignored in this conversation sorry i thought i was gonna sneeze <laughs> come on so like pretty privilege is a real thing if you fit the society's current standard of beauty whatever it is at the time you will get better treatment you will um, get better jobs you will get better pay at those jobs you will um, have more social capital um, you might have better uh, romantic matches uh, set up a better life for yourself in all sorts of ways like there are all of these things within society that make it so that quote-unquote beautiful people are more successful and that sort of brings us into this idea of whether adhering to those beauty standards through makeup, through injectables, through plastic surgery is empowering. And in a sense it is, it can offer individuals like literal power within this system, but it is disempowering on a collective level because each time we adhere to those standards and say, okay, I understand that I have to meet this certain standard if I wanna be treated a certain way, we ensure that everyone around us and everyone who comes after us will also have to adhere to those standards to get basic human rights. And it, like you said, it's not that one is good or one is bad. Like there are real world reactions to both things, but I do think it's really critical to our own understanding of what we're doing and why to frame it as, is this an empowering act for me as an individual or is this an empowering act for the collective? and the future of humanity? And do I want the kind of power that comes from being quote unquote empowered on an individual level in an inherently uh, sexist, racist system? Right. You know, and like that's where beauty standards all stem from is patriarchy, white supremacy, capitalism, and colonialism. Like any standard you can take and you can trace it back to one or all of those and so when you are finding personal empowerment within that system, there's just a lot you have to juggle, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's essentially coping. Like you're, I think- Yes. I've written about this before too, and I've been thinking about it so much because 
so much of what we do to get by in modern life is ultimately coping and we're coping with a, a system that's that's broken in the first place mm-hmm. and sometimes I think we forget like we were so accepting of that system or it's so all around us that it feels invisible it just feels like reality that I think we forget that um what feels empowering in inside that system isn't necessarily like broadly actually empowering mm-hmm. I saw a TikTok the other day of somebody sort of explaining this really it's similar to saying like not everything you do is feminist and that's okay. Like, but just stop calling it feminist, right? This is like an an argument we've talked about or I've talked about a lot on my, in my newsletter. Mm -hmm. Um, And someone in the comments was like, someone who just didn't, didn't grasp this, this must have been someone younger or maybe someone who'd never heard these arguments, but was like, no, like I got my lips done for me. Like they just couldn't wrap their minds around it. Like Mm -hmm. I actually just think it looks better. Like it looks Mm -hmm. better for me. Like I don't even care what other people think. Why do you think it looks better? Right. I mean, I think this like, it always comes back to like, okay, so I, I, get, I have the same response when people say like, well, I shave my legs even when I'm by myself. And yeah. I think, well, just because we've internalized prejudice or like internalized mm-hmm. and are now we now ourselves are the other that's judging ourselves. Yeah. doesn't mean that it's truly for, just for yourself and it's like isolated from these corrupt system that's like right you can internalize these things and they can be, feel very very personal and still be connected to the larger issue and that's why it's so hard to dismantle beauty standards is because they've been so deeply ingrained in us since you know the moment of our birth that they feel like us it feels like our identity and I mean I'm just speaking from personal experience here from when I went through what I went through and I didn't have that outward identity anymore which I think probably a lot of people don't ever have to reach that point where they lose that facade they've created, where they lose that ego shell. And they're like, oh shit, that wasn't me all along. (laughs) And it's so easy for us to think that this is me. My outer appearance is myself. This is part of my self-expression. And really like if you trace back beauty to the first moments of beauty, beauty has never been something that humans have done for ourselves. And that's okay. Like beauty has always been um, part of community, part of being in a tribe, part of um, communicating who you are to another person for the sake of another person. So if you go back to like ancient Egyptian times or ancient tribes in Africa, you know, different members of the community would have different cosmetics that they used or different markings that they wore to kind of signify their place. Or in spiritual ceremonies, they would put on different makeup or, you know, different jewelry, different clothing to emulate their gods. And none of this was done for the sake of the self. Like you'd always did it because you were around other people, because you wanted somebody else to perceive you. And I think where, well, part of where we have gone wrong is this delusion that it's all for me. I don't care if other people perceive me. This is not about how other people perceive me when really it's completely about other, how other people perceive you. And that's okay. That is inherently human. Like that's how we should be going about it. You know, this like thing that we've tricked ourselves into thinking this is exclusively about me. It has nothing to do with the people around me or my environment is, I think really psychologically harmful. Yeah, that's how, it's just proof how deep this conditioning goes. I remember, this is such a random example, but I I read something the other day about how boobs are like not inherently sexual and like- Yes! Like, like, (laughs) like, we don't inherently biologically think boobs are sexual. Like in other cultures where they're not sexualized, they're just like totally another part of the body, like an elbow. Oh my gosh. And- I'm sure it's almost hard to imagine that, you know, it's like, it's so baked in, like, I'm sure for, Mm -hmm. especially for people who are, you know, attracted to women or boobs, like that's probably so hard to imagine that that's not just inherent to them. Like these things, they come so, like they become so ingrained, which kind of brings us to the question of like, okay, so they are ingrained. Mm -hmm. Now, what do we do? Because Mm -hmm. I think this is like always the question that comes with, changing these systems because it starts to feel like well now it's just going to come at such great personal sacrifice Mm -hmm. so I'm just supposed to suffer in this like broken system like what if I want to feel better like and I totally understand I think that um 
for us to say like, oh, you know, quote unquote, or it's quote unquote, like liberating to not be part of these. It actually might not feel that liberating, at least at first. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like in your experience, when you, when your face was sort of peeling and that guy said that to you in the elevator, yeah. like, where'd you go from there? Like what kind of evolution happened for you um, in, in losing that sense of yourself? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was devastating and also um, embarrassing because I had never thought of myself as a particularly superficial person. And so I was like, wow, my outward appearance has such an effect on how I feel about myself. What have I been doing this whole time? Like, what have I been building up? What are the things that I love about myself? What are the things that I love about myself that aren't connected to my appearance or my expression or how other people see me? If it was just me in the world, if I was on an island, like, what things would I find enjoyment in, in myself? And so... I started with meditation and mantra work and I mean, honestly, learning more about how the skin and the body function helped me develop a sort of gratitude for my skin in whatever state it was in because I could see that whatever it was doing was a healing response. Like anything that happens to your skin, whether it's dry flakes or a pimple or inflammation or rosacea, eczema, anything. Um, that's a healing response to something deeper that's going on. And when you can understand that and like really understand and integrate it, I don't know, from my experience, you feel so much gratitude for your skin and your body and all that it does to protect you. Um, even when you are working 100% against it. So I think it, for me, it was, it, it had to come from an appreciation for my physical body and appreciating it solely as like a physical vessel, not for what it looked like, but for what it does for me every day, for how it keeps me going and how it supports my um, non-physical being. You know, I can't be a spiritual or happy or emotionally well-adjusted person if my body isn't those things on like a purely physical level too. Um, So it was kind of like this tandem appreciation for both sides of myself apart from aesthetics right yeah but what do we do with the fact that our our physical being is what people see first right Right. it it totally makes sense that we have come to put some emphasis on it or connect Mm -hmm. it a little bit to identity Mm -hmm. um because you know if you see someone across the room you're not talking to them you don't know anything about them you're going to take cues from their physical form Mm -hmm. as to, to clues maybe you you know, the more generous approach would be to not make assumptions, of course. Yeah, but right. it's like, this is kind of how humans, like, behave. This is like, mm-hmm. this is how stereotyping, for instance, is like, it's we've taken it too far, but like, ultimately there's like usefulness. You know, if somebody looks like they're dangerous, then you sort of like, right. will get anxious or whatever. There's like some survival mm-hmm. or like cooperative behaviors like baked into that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think something interesting to point out there is that no matter what you look like or how you um, manipulate your outside appearance, there's nothing you can do to control how somebody else perceives you. That's just completely outside of your control, which kind of, I guess, hints at this like more spiritual, like surrendering to like a, an almost like more spiritual energetic aspect of it all. Like you have to surrender that control and just accept that even if I got um, a facelift and Botox and lip fillers and like completely made up my outer being exactly the way I wanted it. I can't control if somebody else sees that as like a beautiful thing or not beautiful thing, or if somebody like gets my essence from that, that outward appearance. You also just have to let go of the idea that if somebody is going to judge you on that, is that a person that you care about judging you on that? Right. And then, I mean, to me, that is where this sense of, um, community care comes in. That's a big part of my work is evaluating from like a non-moralizing, non-judgmental, just completely mindful point of view, how our actions and our participation in beauty culture affects the collective. And for me, there are certain things that I know are impacting the collective in a emotionally or mentally harmful way that I don't participate in because I am grounded enough and stable enough and aware enough to the point that in my life, I don't feel the need to participate. So for me, that looks different for everybody. That 
for me, it's, I know that I will never get plastic surgery. I know that I will not do any sort of injectable. Um, if my hair goes gray, I'm going to embrace that. I don't promote in my work any sort of beauty products that manipulate your physical appearance in some way, that don't take the root cause of whatever's happening with your skin into effect. So those are ways that I can divest and I can still feel really good and secure in myself. Um, makeup is another big one. Like I used to wear a full face of foundation every day. I used to like draw on a mole with liquid eyeliner and red lipstick. And that was like a huge part of my character. Um, I feel secure without that anymore. So I don't participate in that part of beauty culture. And I can feel really good that I'm not putting that out into the world. On the other side, um, I have uh, something called trichotillomania, which is a hair picking disorder. So when it's like related to OCD, it's a body focused repetitive behavior disorder. Mm -hmm. So when I get anxious, I pick out my eyebrow hairs and seeing my bald brows makes me even more anxious. And I start picking again at like the hairs that I have left and my bare skin and it creates inflammation and it creates a wound and that is physically harmful to myself and that's mentally harmful to myself. And seeing the bare brows perpetuates that harm for me. So I do get microblading. So I get, you know, permanent makeup done to make it look like I have brows. And that is participating in a beauty standard because not everybody has eyebrows. You know, there are plenty of conditions where you don't have eyebrows. Um, cancer patients don't have eyebrows. Like that is a beauty standard. And it's one I'm participating in because in order to be the fullest, wholest, happiest version of myself, I need to see that I'm quote unquote normal in that area that I haven't like done this sort of damage to myself, you know? Mm -hmm. And that, I think that line will look different for everybody. Like where are you comfortable divesting from beauty culture and where is it mentally harmful to you to not participate because a certain belief is so ingrained or so, so central to your identity or your presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. You're reminding me of Dare I bring up TikTok one more time? Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I'm bringing up it. I'm bringing up one last time. No, I think that the, these ideas are per, are they're perpetuating so quickly on TikTok that it makes mm -hmm. me feel like really panicky. And I just, but I think you know, on the other side, there's a lot of people who are critiquing it probably on TikTok and stuff. I'm not really like I'm not super clued into this whole world, but like everyone's right. really see things and I'll jump in and be like, whoa, there's this whole world. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, I saw this woman who got a facelift. She must have been in her late 50s or something and it's like astounding the difference it made like she didn't look like um the kind of cartoonish facelifts you might see on like real housewives it looked mm -hmm. she just went from looking um like 70 to like 40 and like suddenly she was she was smiling she looked so youthful she was mm -hmm. like everybody was treating her really differently and i thought i mean i totally understand why people do this but it's yeah. you get into this area where it's like how do we ever get out of this? It feels really, it feels really overwhelming. I mean, I think another, another issue with normalizing things, these things, let's say we say, you know what, it's always going to exist to some extent, you know, within, use it within reason. I think we also run into class issues, access issues. Yes. Like you said, it compounds it for the collective. So it's like, okay, let's say that everybody, let's say we completely destigmatize these procedures. Well, now people who are poor mm -hmm. or, you know, any other number of reasons you can't participate are suddenly left out. And, you know, the bar is right. raising for how you look when you're 60. And now they look even worse compared to the bar. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, maybe the problem is that like the bar exists. Yeah. But it just feels so hard to get rid of it. I mean, like, you know, if we assume that some element of like grooming ourselves, I mean, I, I, I think I mentioned this in another podcast of where like my old therapist was like, well, you know, like, even animals groom, like it's a little bit mm -hmm. of, it is part of, I mean, actually maybe it's not, as you were saying, like other cultures haven't done it in the same way or they have, maybe it's more focused on the other, but it's hard to imagine. Like, let's say we're, let's, let's imagine a utopia where this bar doesn't exist. The, um, the intense internalized hatred mm -hmm. is not there. What does grooming look like? Right. So, I mean, grooming is, you know, like you said, animals do it. It's instinctual. Um, grooming is why our ancestors like bathed in mineral waters um, and, you know, created tools to brush their hair and their beards. And, um, you know, to an extent, 
I, I personally love to research like the indigenous and Native American understandings of how to work with nature to create products that we need for our own care. So I look at things like jojoba oil, which has been used by Native Americans for centuries, or things like shea butter from Africa. Like there's a certain amount of instinct in that because like who is the first person to like decide, oh, this nut would probably create a butter that would be really good for our bodies if we did it in this specific process that takes, you know, seven to 10 days. Like there's a certain amount of intuition and instinct that I think the earliest humans who started caring for their bodies with these outside products had that, I mean, we just, we don't have anymore. But I do think that we can access that sort of instinct and intuition again. But I think we have to really re-educate ourselves on a collective and individual level about what our bodies are supposed to do and what those functions are supposed to look like. Because we just have this ideal of aesthetic beauty right now that is so far removed from what like an instinctual um, care routine would give you that it's really hard to integrate the two. Right, right. Yeah. It's also like a priority shift, right? Because it's like mm-hmm. maybe that woman, if we, were, if we didn't place such an emphasis on youth, her life might not have changed as drastically just because she looked a little younger. Exactly. Like anti-aging specifically, I think, goes against all of our human instincts because like the human instinct is to keep your bloodline going and you, to keep your genetic makeup, you know, living on in the next generation. Like that is our whole biological imperative. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is the whole point. And anti-aging like symbolically stops that flow. So it like, just from a, a purely aesthetic point of view, it's like, oh, we're, we're just stopping this natural flow of life that is embedded in our bodies we don't want it to look like it's happening anymore um and then like on a sort of epigenetic level of how it's going to impact the health and behaviors and mindset of future generations it causes a lot of harm i think because adhering to beauty standards or feeling like you need to adhere to beauty standards or even you know deciding that you're not going to adhere to beauty standards but being bombarded with media that tells you there's a certain way you should look every day Um, That has such an impact on our physical selves, on our mental and emotional well-being. Um, That's part of the reason why I used to be like very into clean beauty. And I was like, if you're going to use any products, like use these clean products. And then I realized like clean products are still promoting the same unrealistic standards. And those standards have a more, you know, quote unquote, toxic effect on us than any sort of single endocrine disruptor or paraben or phthalate ever would. Like the pressure of beauty standards is proven to contribute to eating disorders, to body dysmorphia, to anxiety, to depression, to self-harm, to suicide. Like these are really measurable, dire consequences of being bombarded daily with a standard of beauty that nobody can meet. Like by definition, that's the point of a beauty standard in a capitalist society is you don't want anyone to feel secure. You want everyone to be buying into that over and over and over and over and over again. Um, And that does have really um, serious physical and mental consequences. And I think if anybody is concerned about like the ingredients in their beauty products and they're using that sort of health justification, collective justification to use cleaner products, we need to start um, applying that same mindset to toxic beauty standards because they have more proven measurable health effects than individual ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also important to say that like these, these narratives affect everyone, but they certainly affect certain people more. Right. I mean, I remember when I wrote, I wrote a story, I never forgot this because well, I'll tell you in a second, but, um, I wrote about my decision to stop wearing makeup a few years ago. And I think Looking back on the piece, there's a lot of things I would have said differently about it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for instance, well, actually, I want to ask you about, like, expressive makeup in a second. Because yeah. I think yeah, that yeah. that's, like, that's, that's one critique that my piece got, which is, um, you know, what about when makeup is expressive? Or, like, it feels really um, ornamental. You know, gems on your face and things like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm curious your thoughts on. But I, 
I wrote about this experience and some, the most common critique, I actually got, I got a ton of support for it. So I don't have a bad feeling about it in general, but um, some people said, well, you have it easy. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course I don't feel like I have it easy, even though I totally recognize that I do. Um, but I think the point I was trying to make more so wasn't so much that um, I have it so hard, which was, but rather that it felt somehow um, unfeminine to ever choose to look less good than you could. Mm-hmm. Like that was more the difference for me, um, more than it was about how good I looked without it or whatever. Right. But I remember it was Mark, you know who Mark Duplass is? Yes. <laughs> His wife. Oh my God. Commented. No. I was remember this because like at the time I was really into the Duplass brothers. <laughs> um, and I was like, I was very taken with their movies at the time. So I was like, no. His oh wife commented. God. It was like, get back to me when you're like 45 or something like that. Yes. Um, so there was this sentiment of kind of like, obviously these pressures are not universally felt. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I always want to acknowledge that in these conversations where right. when you're, t- I mean, you kind of got into a little bit when you're talking about figuring out where your line is with personally divesting. Cause I think, mm-hmm especially with how Eurocentric the beauty standards are. I mean, now Instagram face is becoming like a weird melding of a bunch of different cultures that I think that like most people, like you said, no one naturally has. Yeah, But it's so ingrained. It's like, I've even been thinking about it with, because I was just with my nieces who are three. In every cartoon, they have huge eyes, like tiny nose, big smile. Mm -hmm, It's like, mm -hmm. (laughs) I I was watching, um, now I'm like really getting off topic, but I was watching (laughs) Raya. Have you seen that? I have not, but I know what you're you're talking about, yes. I had not even heard of it actually, but um, it's like supposed to be this sort of cultural feat because it's like, it's all, it's like a melding of a bunch of different Southeast, I don't know if it's Southeast Asian or South Asian, but all this melding of South Asian cultures. And they gave a lot of the characters like different physical features that you might not have, might not have seen in previously, in previous Disney movies. But still like the main, the actual main protagonist had like a, she looked exactly like Kendall Jenner. Oh my gosh. Like full Instagram face. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And I thought like, we just can't avoid this. It's Mm -hmm. everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, to get back to the point about like it affecting some people more, however far you deviate from that particular standard. Right. It's tough. Like, how do you approach that with with talking about how we change this when, Mm -hmm. frankly, like, if we all had to stop, like, that burden would be felt a lot more by some people than others. A hundred percent. I have written about this before a little bit, and I have an article on Teen Vogue about, like, the origin of beauty standards, if anybody wants to read up on it more, but it's all about, like, how everything stemmed first from patriarchy, second from white supremacy, third colonialism and fourth capitalism and um for additional recommended reading i would definitely check out um tressie mcmillan cotton her book thick and other essays has um an essay about beauty and how it affects black women primarily the beauty industry i just got that book oh my god it is it's incredible i i wish i had found that book before i wrote that teen vogue piece because i was like this is everything i was trying to say but so much better. Wow. Um, and okay. what, tre- yeah, what Tressie writes in that essay is that beauty is a form of capital. And just like any other form of capital, it's not good capital, you know, it's inherently corrupt. And in order for people to want to have beauty, beauty has to, by definition, exclude. And Tressie's argument is that beauty, the beauty industry's main function is to exclude blackness. And when you look at our beauty standards and how they have all evolved, that 100% stands up. Like whiteness is the defining factor of, of all beauty standards, even if you go so far back as to like when we started washing our faces with soap and cleanliness is next to godliness. Like these are so deeply ingrained to like a level that most of us will never even think of. And then when you jump forward to today's beauty standard and you see Instagram face, it is that same main function to exclude blackness because what we're doing basically is taking black features and superimposing them onto white bodies. And that is devastating and violent to 
the black community and to all people of color whose features have been co-opted by the predominantly white beauty industry. Um, and I think we also have to have compassion for ourselves on an individual level that this hurt and this pain caused by beauty culture, we all feel it. No matter how close or how far away we are to this designated standard, the nature of beauty standards is, is to make everybody feel that way. So even if you are you know, pretty uh, close to this Instagram face thing we've got going on and the big boobs and small waist and big butt, even if you're pretty close to that, you're still gonna feel like you're not. You're still going to feel like you have so much work to put in and that you're never going to be enough because that is just the nature of the beauty industry. Or your looks will fade and then you'll be excluded. Like the exclusion exactly, is coming at some exactly. point. So I think we do have to have like compassion for ourselves that our feelings about ourselves as they apply to beauty are very real. And these feelings will be more destructive for different groups of people. It's all, it's so tricky because there's like two realities that feel almost in conflict. One is mm -hmm. that like there are real consequences and like I understand why people do not want to divest. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, there's not as many consequences as you think, right? Yes. It's like if you actually yes. think about what brings your life meaning, mm -hmm. it's not like inciting envy from other people. It's not other people thinking you're pretty or dress well. It's like really, it's so much more elemental. It's like connection with people, right. which is something that like, we have regardless of like how we're presenting it's just it's yes. so hard to remember that because our brains have been so poisoned i mean i think like on every level like even the youth thing it's like not only is the youth obsession with youth for women like sexist of course but it's also capitalistic it's like you become less yes productive in society productive. and mm -hmm. um youth is such a commodity and so i feel like these things are so woven together they've created this whole mm -hmm. tapestry of value that yes. like we've bought into even though like a kind of our real life experiences don't necessarily reinforce them yeah somehow we're able to like uphold them in our minds and like that's the power of marketing because it's all of these conflicting forces so with anti-aging in particular it's the glorification of youth is um deeply related to religious indoctrination, you know, the purity and the innocence of youth. And that mm. goes back to like the Protestant um, influences on capitalism in this country, um, the productivity mindset, like you said, which is a holdover from slavery. Um, you know, that's a very colonialist white supremacist idea is that your, your worth is your productivity. Um, and then mm. capitalism obviously intersects with that. And it's like anti-aging is an unmeetable goal. You will never anti-age. And so that's very convenient for capitalism because you will have to keep buying things. You will have to keep getting Botox. Like you are a consumer for life if you just buy into this one ideology. And then there's also just this like general fear of death and not wanting to face our mortality, which is like kind of on a spiritual plane. So it's, there's so much work we have to do to dismantle that idea that being young is more beautiful, being young is better, because it hits us on so many levels. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's a challenge. How much extra time do you have to devote to really wrapping your mind around all of that and doing the inner work when you could just go get Botox in 10 minutes, you know? Yeah, of course. What do you think about the side of makeup that is sort of presented as like more expressive or creative, mm -hmm. especially the kind that's it's not attempting to fix quote-unquote flaws, but it's mm -hmm. more decorative. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I think that messaging is also a crutch for a lot of makeup that isn't that. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, you can say that about anything. Uh, it doesn't right, like necessarily make it true. Um, <laughs> the people on YouTube who are doing crazy, crazy makeup that is really... Um, decorative, it still starts with like cutting the cheekbone, making mm -hmm. the nose narrower, making the eyes look bigger, mm -hmm. all things that reinforce this beauty standard that's racist and sexist, etc. Yeah, so I try to think of it as like adornment versus manipulation. The way I think about it is like if something is covering a flaw or even, you know, the flip side of it, enhancing a good feature by distracting from my flaw. Like that's not self-expression for me. That's like more self-rejection. So like concealer and foundation, I do not think there is any amount of self-expression in that. But I'm a woman existing in the world and I use them just the same. 
And then I also think there's something to say for like a full look in terms of signaling that you are part of a community and and attracting those types of people like so for instance like full-on punk get up with like the dark eyeshadow and the black lipstick and the you know spiked hair whatever it is there can be elements of self-rejection in that but there can also be sort of this like foundational human draw towards makeup which is to say this is who I am this is the community that I'm part of and this is the community that I want to draw in and it signals to other people that you are part of their community and you are a kindred spirit so yeah I mean it's all in that case sometimes it feels like more communal than individualistic which I think mm-hmm. would be nice but there's always like there's just going to be a line and everyone's gonna have to figure there's, out where it is yeah. for themselves because I think even like decorative clothing or makeup and stuff it can still make you feel like you have to live up to a certain standard and that's like I guess I think your term like self-rejection is really interesting because if ultimately at the end of the day it's not making you feel or you feel that your worth is tied to these things yes they're not additive they're subtractive Mm -hmm. and I think like it's really hard to keep that in mind yeah I mean like we've said it comes out it comes out of cost sometimes rejected maybe not as much of a cost as we think mm-hmm. but it does come out of co- at a cost I think like it feels like it's going to take such a massive disruption of values for us to move away from this I'm curious like it obviously feels really overwhelming like we're talking about like how deep these things go like how right. visible to us like how intersectional mm-hmm. they are I'm curious like how you feel or what you think are some ways that we can combat these things. And I and I'm I'm wary of like always focusing on the individual because, you know, mm-hmm. people might feel like, okay, well if I stop doing this, like that's not gonna change anything. And in fact right. it's just gonna punish me. Mm-hmm. So I'm cu- curious, like what what do we do? I mean, like obviously talking about it is huge. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious what are other things that come up in your work? Yeah. Uh, I think so much of this really does come back to the beauty industry. And that's like sort of what I'm trying to do like if you have a platform to talk about these things honestly and openly like that's and like foster those kinds of conversations that has the power to spur collective change like you having this podcast and talking to however many people are going to listen to it that spurs the collective kind of change like even just having these sorts of conversations with your friends like if you have a group of three or four friends that helps spur change um I also think that is there any policy related to this? What do you mean? Like, I mean, obviously, like, it, on the sustainability front, for instance, there's, mm-hmm. he, there's policy change that can mm-hmm. hold companies accountable, right? Like, I'm curious, like, obviously, there have been some policy things with fashion. I think like, maybe it's not, like, uh, government, uh, from the government, but I know that, like, there's they're not allowed to have, like, certain underweight people, like, in fashion shows or something mm-hmm. like that, or, like, people who look... Right. physically sick like I don't know if there's um if there are levels of that like that are on the more institutional level like mm-hmm. my, you know whether it's the thing is is that marketing always finds a way <laughs> it's like right. if you think about Dove's commercials that were like all about like oh my god real beauty or like whatever these things are that's I mean that's honestly the best example if you want to flip your perspective is like that ad was designed to sell us cellulite cream like that lotion was to get rid of cellulite And that started the whole Dove campaign for Real Beauty, which was also, um, there was a really interesting article on that in Adweek about how it came to be. And it was like the brainchild of two guys because one of the men's wife was like trying to explain beauty standards and was like, imagine if someone told you every day that your dick was too small. And this guy was like inspired into action because he was like, we can't have women feeling this way. (laughs) It's like such a weird story. Oh my god. Um, but as as far as policy, it's just so insidious that there isn't one big thing that we could overturn. There are tons of individual um examples, especially in the workplace, especially in terms of salary, in terms of like hiring procedures. Um but I think in order to dismantle those things at an institutional level, we would really have to focus on specific beauty standards. So like, for instance, if we wanted to attack anti-aging, 
it would have to include better care for the elderly, health equity, um, better health insurance, um, better just options for them to live out, you know, the remaining years of their lives in peace with support from the government. Yeah. And care for parents. Yes. All the yes. people who feel like they lose power. Mm-hmm. It's the, it, it go, you're right. It goes so far. I mean, it, like we said, it's like also interwoven with capitalism that I feel like mm-hmm. really any sort of anti-capitalist progress would have a positive effect yes. on the industry. I wrote an article about that once that was like to divest from anti-aging. We also have to divest from capitalism and we also have to divest from colonialism because those are all inherently interconnected. So I have used this analogy before to kind of counter the idea that individuals can't really have an impact, but like relating the beauty industry to an MLM or a market multi-level marketing company. Mm -hmm. So like, obviously you have the people at the top in the beauty industry. That would be like the forces of patriarchy, patriarchy, white supremacy, capitalism, colonialism. The next tier would be like institutions that enforce those sorts of standards, you know, government, um, even things like science and, and medicine, we have huge misunderstandings of how different skin types work and how different bodies are supposed to look and, you know, fat phobic, racist ideas of what, you know, the ideal body is. So that's the next tier. And then we have um, beauty brands, beauty founders, uh, celebrities, influencers who peddle these, these standards down to the general public. And then you have the general public. And when we participate in those beauty standards, we are circulating them around just like an MLM would. You know, we're all part of that downline. And the thing about an MLM is if you don't have a downline, the upline doesn't have any power. So like, I do think that on an individual level, we have this huge capacity to affect change by re-examining our relationship to beauty because if we stop buying into beauty standards, we will stop being fed beauty standards. Like it's all this really vicious cycle of like, you know, the beauty industry plants an idea and then we want it. And then individuals will take that idea to the next level. And then the beauty industry responds to that. And it really is like a big circle of just escalating beauty standards. Yeah. And, and I, I do think that by examining our own relationship and deciding to opt out of beauty standards where we can, we, we can actually affect industry change. Like even just look at it's not the best example, but like skin positivity, that's a huge sector in the beauty industry now. And so many large brands are saying, okay, we're going to show um, pimples. We're going to show hyperpigmentation. We're going to show uh, eczema because of a demand from individuals to not have to look at these impossible beauty standards all the time. And that's right. like a huge growing sector. Obviously there's a problem because underneath those marketing images, they're selling you products to get rid of those things. <laughs> Right? But. It's such a cycle. It's such a cycle. No, but I see what you're saying. I think, like, obviously, the collective is made up of individuals. Yeah. So the idea is, like, if we can examine, it's not so much, like, your actions are upholding it, and now you're, it's, like, your mm-hmm. fault, and you have, it's up to you to change it. Mm-hmm. I think it's more that, um, it's more that it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. We are all coping. But yes. if we can recognize it as coping and we can start building ideas as a collective that help us like re-examine these things, mm-hmm. then I do think there is like power in us as consumers changing our consumer preferences. Mm-hmm. I mean, unfortunately, we're going like completely the opposite direction. <laughs> Not completely. Like I think that there's a struggle with this because, um, you know, I think we put a lot of emphasis on like Instagram, like showing the right things on Instagram, but it's like Instagram is still this just like huge... Ultimately, it's still making like Mark Zuckerberg richer, and it's still asking us to perform ourselves, or mm-hmm. perform ourselves, or commodify ourselves. Even if like the standards of that commodification are like changing or getting better, it still feels like it's kind of reinforcing kind of a harmful paradigm. So, I mean, on the other side, on Instagram, like Facetune, I I I, yes. I think like I don't know if I'm too old because I've never Facetuned anything, but I was reading an article about how commonplace it is for younger people. It's not even taboo. Everyone, mm-hmm. like, they, like, you know, I think in this in this article, you know, maybe it was biased, but it was talking about how, like, in a group photo, the girls will pass around, they'll each, like, take their turn face-tuning themselves, and they all send out the pictures so everybody, like, posts a consistent photo, and it's just, mm-hmm. it's just part of it. It's almost like, or as they described it, they're like, it's so commonplace that it's not even a secret. It's just, like, who did it better? 
Yeah. And that's like, that's what worries me is it feels like we're reaching this peak of like, how much farther can we possibly go? Like all of these tools that, you know, used to be like Hollywood things, or you would see in magazines, like the airbrushing, the Photoshop have been democratized and we all have access to them at our fingertips at any moment, like for free. And it's just like, how much, how much more intense can it possibly get? Like what, what worries me and what sort of motivates me is I feel like we're reaching this sort of breaking point. And I, maybe every generation feels that. Like you can't imagine how much stricter the beauty standards will possibly get. And then they get yeah. more and more and more. But yeah, suddenly we're living in a virtual world where like nobody's physical form even matters anymore. And you're like, oh, God, it couldn't get any worse. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that that really worries me. But I do feel like there are different um, paths happening here. Like, for instance, the two like trend articles I keep seeing coming out of the pandemic are like, one is the Botox boom. Like people are getting Botox, they're getting fillers, they're getting plastic surgery. And then the other one is that women are letting their hair go gray. So it's like, we've let go of some standards, even though we're giving into certain others. And maybe that's how it's just always going to be. But I do think that any, any little bit of progress is, is progress there. I'm, working on a book about basically all of this now. Congratulations. Oh, That's thank amazing. You. Yes, I'm really excited about it. But two of the main like things that I am trying to get through in this book is one that beauty culture is a trauma response. It's a trauma response to being judged solely on what you look like and having that that judgment be held to a standard that you will never ever meet. And just like any other trauma response, you're coping, you're finding ways to deal with that. And coping mechanisms aren't bad, you need them. And sometimes we can move from like an unhealthy coping mechanism to one that's a little bit better for us. Like where can we stop using like a beauty product or an injection as a coping mechanism and find another thing to help us work through that problem sort of. And like, I think we've developed because of this, like this sort of codependent relationship with with products, you know, to form our identity. That's a really good final thought. I think another way that would help is to present alternatives, you know, rather mm-hmm. than just like shitting on what we have. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to imagine healthier ways to deal with mm-hmm. the trauma. Um, and like some people might think that sounds extreme, but it's really not. It's not. It's really, it's very, very upsetting. Like, the fact that like your whole mood and your whole outlook on life can be determined by whether you measure up or not. It's mm-hmm. just, it's very traumatic. And not even your own outlook, but like your actual, um, standing. Uh, yeah. Your actual standing in society for something you can't help. It's like, yeah, that's mm-hmm. very traumatic. And it's mm-hmm. like, so I think it would be good to imagine healthier ways to cope that might help us do divest on a more communal level mm-hmm. and feel more comfortable doing that. I think like, like you said, it's really great for people who have, for people to figure out where that line is, is like where, where they can stop indulging in this in a way that they might find actually makes them feel better. I mean, for me mm-hmm. with makeup, like I started kind of more comfortable with my face, like after yes. I stopped changing it every day. A hundred percent. And that this is the thought that popped into my head earlier when you were like, you said something about you know, how can we tell people like, you can't do this thing to make yourself feel better. So the thing about like getting an injectable to feel better is you don't feel better actually, like on the level that you want to, because it's going to fade and then you have to get it done again. And it's this constant stream of, okay, I felt better for a little bit and now I don't feel better anymore. And now I have to do it again. And now I don't feel better anymore. And I think we have kind of deluded ourselves into believing that adhering to these standards will make us feel better on the deeper like soul level spirit level that we want to feel better on and they don't actually yeah so I think if again like comes back to honesty if we can be honest with ourselves that we're not actually getting the outcome we think we're getting from these things um it makes it easier to realize that like oh they're not actually that powerful they're powerful but they're not as powerful as I was making them out to be and then one more thing that I do want to say is in this conversation, I feel like it is, it's hard because the beauty industry was deliberately built on the binary to reinforce the binary. And it makes these 
thing's really hard to talk about when you take into account um, trans people and non-binary people and gender expression and the psychological impact of all of that too. So especially when you're like discussing injectables and surgery and there, there are so many surgical procedures and ways to do your makeup and just things of outward expression that can actually be true empowerment and collective empowerment for say a trans person um but not collective empowerment for like a cis woman if that makes any sense you know like yeah it does so that's another reason why it's really hard to dismantle these ideals on a larger societal level is because they do affect everyone differently and if you are a trans woman adhering to those standards is bringing you closer to the self-expression versus self-rejection thing. And it can prevent harm. Exactly, exactly. It's so important. ContraPoints had an interesting video. Do you know who ContraPoints is? Mm-mm. She's a trans YouTuber, essayist, and she digs into a lot of like philosophy around this stuff. And she had a really interesting video about beauty where she dug into where the line was for her. Like, mm. part of it, of course... Facial feminization surgery helped her hugely, but she felt that there were certain points where she was going too far. And like, if she was honest with herself, was actually just trying to make like a perfect face according to like an unrealistic standard. And that that was like a really interesting place. I'll link it in my thing because I thought that was. um, Yeah. If we didn't have such strict beauty standards and such strict um, like gender ideals stemming from beauty standards, Personally, I think it would be so much easier for us to exit the binary. Right. You know, if you are trans, if you are non-binary, there would be a certain degree of freedom from a certain part of like needing to conform to that ideal in order to fit your gender expression. You know, like there is there's a certain amount that's inherent and there's a certain amount that's like inherited from the culture. And ultimately, I think divesting from beauty standards is helpful to everybody because it lessens that pressure for all of us. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Jessica, for coming on. I'm sorry I had to take off our hellos and our goodbyes. That was an artistic decision on the part of my mic. And thank you so much to anyone listening to this and to anyone who's, I guess no one's hearing this who's not listening to this, so fuck all those people. You know what I mean? Okay, have a nice week. Thank you to Soft Streak. And I will see you on Sunday. Okay, bye.